You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? I'm well, Giles. I, I, I trust you're well, uh, enjoying lockdown like most of us, um, uh, and and looking forward to what has been an extremely amusing week in electricity. Uh, uh, it's quite obvious uh, that some of uh, you know Renew Economy's competitor uh, media outlets, uh, Giles, don't seem to have uh, or seem to have gotten to the comedy spirit of things when you when you read headlines like uh, "Keep Coal Open to Encourage Renewables." Um, you know, okay. it, 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 uh, you know, it, it would have been placed in a comedy show, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think so, but I'm not too sure whether that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's more out of despair than anything else. I mean, this is serious policy matters, and I guess if Angus Taylor thought that policy could be decided by headlines, then um, he'd be on a winner. But, um, yes, I'm actually halfway through writing a story just was suggesting that that could be the dumbest headline I've ever seen in, on an energy, <laughs> about energy, um, in the Fin Review, which is a bit of a despairing, but um, quite similar to the ones that we um, saw yesterday and come to have come to expect from the Australian. Um, Look, that was, I mean, look, it, a lot of med- reading material today. The Energy Security Board um, came out and finally revealed um, the details of its recommendations to federal and state energy ministers. Angus Taylor, of course, had to get the first word, if not the final word, and briefed um, some very friendly journalists and got an awful lot of articles published in um, the Fin Review and the Murdoch Media and um, on Sky News basically promoting a option from the ESB paper, which just about everyone concludes is about as dumb as idea as you can get. Well, you know, and there are a lot of re- uh, relationships, professional and personal, it sometimes seems to me, between the Australian and the Financial Review. And, and, and also, I mean, you know, like Tiki Fullerton writes for the Australian, and, and she just seems to be a press officer, I mean, uh, for, 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 for the government these days. But I mean... Maybe I'm over-reading it. And uh, look, Jennifer Hewitt uh, was the author of that article, Keep Coal Open to Encourage Renewables, with the humour headline of the year. Uh, but uh, And she said it was a hard policy to sell. And I suppose that's actually right on the money. <laughs> <laughs> look, it is a hard policy to sell. Look, more importantly, the states haven't actually been, um, um, haven't actually come on board. And that's basically going to be the undoing of Angus Taylor's grand plans here, because the state's don't have to um, agree with this. They do have their own plans. Um, This is underlined by the news on Friday that New South Wales, which has got its own detailed infrastructure roadmap to replace coal and to with with renewables and storage, they put out an expressions of interest for the New South Wales renewable, uh, the New England, sorry, renewable energy zone, 34 gigawatts, just for eight gigawatts of um, available capacity. Um, Barnaby Joyce would be absolutely thrilled. Yes, no, I think he will. And Adam Marshall was reported as saying that they'll be able to pick the projects that have the most local input for New England. Well, he would say that. He's the the New England minister uh, uh, at the state level. uh, And so probably have more influence on what happens than Barnaby Joyce. 
Um, that's great. Uh, turning all those expressions of interest into uh, projects that are actually accepted and, and running and make on time, that's the real challenge for it. Uh, uh, you know, these things are always going to be very hard and working out the exact rules. I, I can't say too much more about that until, until we see some more details. I will say that even though there's only eight, eight gigawatts of um, required capacity, quite often they take more projects on, on the basis that some of them will be able to run at different times on the available transmission capacity. So to try and make uh, more use of that. So you could take wind and solar on, have the solar run running during the day and the wind more at night. Uh, that, that's all I want to say about that. If we come back to the main news, which is this, uh, the release of the documents uh, by the ESB, uh, I, I think the point to be made is that it's still incredibly uncertain. The e ESB's own future is completely up in the air and they acknowledge that. So yet all this detailed design work uh, has yet to be done. I myself, Giles, am not uh, necessarily in, uh, ideologically opposed to having a capacity market of some description. I do think that we need more firming capacity. I think that the, the wind and the solar and stuff can get in, well, particularly the wind. Solar faces its own uh, incredible challenge from rooftop solar. Um, but uh, uh, getting the firming, the new firming in, uh, that's, that's the trick to it. Um, and therefore, the actual detailed design of the capacity market, like you could either have explicit, um, and if you want to leave it to, 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 the, to the, the, the capacity market that's been proposed as a distributed one, where each retailer has to determine for itself how much firming capacity uh, it needs and how to get it and where to get it. And so the, um, um, uh, how do you get the new generation into that because propping up the coal, existing coal generators indefinitely is just not going to be very successful and there's no uh, guarantee that um, uh, a capacity market still won't lead to a lot of coal generators closing at more or less the same time. Um, well not you... just that I mean it doesn't actually guarantee that they're going to be able to produce and generate when they're actually needed um, that's what the various independent analyses even the ones that presented um, to the ESB the public one that we've seen which was done by FTI consulting last September just said exactly that point um, you can have a PRRO and you can have all this capacity and they might get payments but they're still not guaranteed that they're going to be able to produce when they're actually needed to and that seems to be the opinion of most people in the market um, that's, that's what the AEMC wrote, uh, Charles, <laughs> exactly that. But it, it ensures the capacity is built or, uh, or uh, exists, but it doesn't ensure that it will be available and online uh, at the time it's needed. And the reason for that is they've already been paid just to sit there. They don't get paid to actually run. Whereas in yeah. a spot market, in a spot market, you get paid, you know, $10,000 a megawatt hour to produce it. So there's, there's far better incentive that that's that's the uh, academic argument and and the other side of it is that the um, um, costs of running an existing coal generator per year up until they need a, um, a dam upgrade an ash dam or a major boiler upgrade probably are only the uh, fuel cost and, and and the opex and and some maintenance capex which you know might be uh, 40 50 dollars a megawatt hour 60 dollars a megawatt hour depending on uh, which gener coal generator you are, uh, and and uh, most new firming capacity uh, like batteries or pumped hydro is going to need a lot more than that. But it does, and we can already see when you look at the underlying reality of it, just this spring already, 
it's only about six or eight weeks ago we were talking about these incredibly high prices that we were seeing this year. And now we're back to the usual scenario of seeing negative prices in the middle of the day that are going to go on for months and months and not enough battery capacity, for instance, available to, um, uh, to, to move the prices up and uh, to charge during the middle of the day. And the result of this is that the coal generators are having to do this incredible ramping already in spring, which, you know, frankly, puts them at risk of blowing up uh, by the time the heat of summer comes around. Which is why we actually need a mechanism that recognises this sort of ch- these rapid changes, also the new technology options, and it should be sort of guided towards that instead of what we have now. I mean, I'm actually quite astonished, and I think a lot of other people are, that after a couple of years of working on this, that the ESP hasn't come out with something a bit more definite. Yes, well, it's it's the usual thing but when we can't agree at the top level on the roadmap forward. But I, I, I also the uh, chief apparatchiks, um, uh, that's the Russian term for a functionary, Giles, that I looked up long ago. <laughs> Anyway, yes, go on. Uh, who are also on the ESB, uh, that would be, you know, Dan Westerman and, and Collier at the AEMC. They're the new kids on the block, right? The ESB personnel, particularly Claire Savage, have, have been around for a long time and, you know, their sort of views and positions uh, are sort of well known. But there will be uh, weight to be attached to the positions that Westerman and Collier actually adopt. And, and so... Uh, we don't, re- none of us, I, at least I don't exactly know, I don't think we learnt a thing from our interview with Westerman about what he actually thinks about it. Do, do you? No, not really. No, and I think the sort of the point has been made that he is the new boy on the block, so he's probably sort of still, still feeling his way in the sort of the political environment and how these things are sort of played out um, in the back rooms. But um, yes, there definitely just seems to be some sort of... Um, Lack of agreement and lack of, um, yes, uh, lack of cohesion there. But um, anyway, look, it's a huge contract. And, and I do actually point out to, uh, we're hosting this webinar um, next week um, on the ESB um, redesign. Um, the National Electricity Market, Who Rules the Market, um, is being hosted by uh, Paul Kerner from Ashurst and uh, has uh, Simon Corbell, uh, now representing the Clean Energy Investors Group. It has Anna Collier from the AMC, who you've just mentioned, as well as New South Wales Energy Minister Matt Keane. So it'll be fascinating to get some more insight there. So um, please do sign up for that. David, it's situation in Australia is in stark contrast to what we're seeing in many ways, um, not in all ways, but in many ways to what we're seeing in the US. And you did an interesting interview. Um, I wasn't able to do it because I was sort of buried in ESB stuff yesterday. But you did an interview um, on focusing on what's happening in the US. Tell us more about it. So in the USA, uh, what I, I learned was that, um, or have been looking at is there's a huge number of state-based renewable mandates in addition to whatever federal policy uh, Joe Biden is able to get. The main federal policy is something called the investment tax credit and the production tax credit, which basically gives someone a, a tax deduction uh, for 10 or 15 years on, on the um, amount of uh, renewable el- electricity produced. And That's been an on and off thing, but in in the end, it's always been on, and that's the federal level. But there are also all these state-level renewable mandates, very similar to Victoria's uh, 50% uh, uh, target and Queensland's 50% target and and the the, South Australian target, 100%, and and the Tasmanian target. And so the net effect of all of those is uh, leading to an explosion or continued growth of wind and solar in the United States to the tune of about... 
35 gigawatts per year. And over in the USA, batteries can also qualify for an investment tax credit. So they get a subsidy uh, that, that you can't get in um, uh, Australia. Uh, and uh, uh, this is forcing down the amount of capacity payments in the big US markets. So PJM, which is a market in the northeast of the United States, is about a thousand terawatt hours per year, five times the Australian market. And it is a capacity market which has a huge or a wide range of fuels in it, but an awful lot of gas. And so even with the low gas prices in the United States, the increased amount of supply is driving down the capacity payments that are available to the gas guys. And the total revenue that they're getting is likely to be less than their full costs. It's a bit above their debt costs, uh, forcing gas generation uh, increasingly out of the market. And so uh, we interviewed this week Adam Wilson, who is from uh, a division of S&P, the global ratings agency, very highly respected. Uh, about his forecast that something like 15% of US uh, combined cycle gas generation capacity is going to be under threat over the next eight years. And it's also important to understand that that's like the minimum threat. The uh, maximum threat uh, would be driven by uh, if, if the current Biden or actually Democrat in the, in the House legislation gets through, which calls for a national USA clean energy percentage where they're actually aiming for 80% by 2030. Now, I think that's not actually going to be achievable if I had to bet on it, but it's a fantastic ambition. And that legislation could get killed off at any time, but it's actually making, it's, it's jumping the hurdles that are required to get it voted on this year it will need all, as I understand it, all the Democratic senators in the United States, including this guy Manchin or something who's in West Virginia, a Democrat in a, in a coal state, uh, who has to think very hard how he votes. Uh, but there's some possibility we'll get this national standard. And as we all know, the states are going to gradually tighten up anyway. Uh, so I think the outlook for wind and solar in the United States is, is very strong. And the outlook for gas, we've already seen a big decline in coal, and I'm talking a lot. So let's hear from uh, Adam Wilson. Adam, perhaps you could, uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Perhaps you could just tell me a little bit about S&P Capital IQ to start with, what it's, how it differs from S&P, the, the broader ratings agency. Sure. Thank you, David, for having me. Yeah, S&P uh, Capital IQ is a recently rebranded um, segment of S&P. Uh, you know, I kind of, fall under the 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 sub segment of S&P global market intelligence which which covers um various market segments uh and specifically you know I look at the the energy markets you know and we we provide market analysis market insight for you know utilities investment banks um energy developers renewable developers um and you know and help help guide them on you know where we see uh market action going what legislative actions what impacts we think those will have um and, and things of that nature and and specifically uh you know we focus specifically we're pretty a, a u.s centric um agency um at least the the market intelligence platform is and it's a little bit different obviously the the s p brand is, is a pretty um pretty broad brand as you as you know many people know it from the 
the ratings yeah, yeah. side. It, it, along with Moody's, it's the primary uh, debt ratings uh, uh, service in the United States, uh, uh, globally, I would say. And uh, every CFO I've ever met at a, at a big public company uh, thinks uh, uh, about their meeting with S&P and whether their debt will be upgraded or downgraded and manage their debt accordingly. But the global intelligence side of it seems to be something more like Reuters or uh, even a mini Bloomberg or BNEF. Uh, yes. Correct. Yeah, those are those. Yeah, you've kind of listed our kind of our, our main competitors, so to speak. Yeah, we're we're, we're pretty we're pretty a um, different uh, segment than than the ratings agency. That's more well known. Yep. So uh, I was interested. I read was reading some of your research uh, recently, and I guess the USA is about a uh, four hundred terawatt hour electricity market uh, year by year. And um, uh, it's divided into separate regions. And I guess, um, like every country in the world, there's this ongoing decarbonisation push. And I was interested to see that all the states have their separate renewable mandates. By and large, just what's your impression of how much uh, sentiment? And well, let's talk about new capacity. I think there's likely to be about 40 gigawatts of new capacity in the United States of all sorts this year. How much of that will be renewable, do you think? And if we look forward from that for the next two or three years, have you got a sense of of the, those numbers as well? Yeah, uh, definitely. So um, re renewables are um, the the leading market segment for for leading asset class for new generation. You know, you, you tagged, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, 40 gigawatts of new generation, you know, from what I'm seeing, uh, about 33 gigawatts of that is from wind and solar combined. Um, and, 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 and if you add in energy storage, you know, that's another four gigawatts. So a, a very substantial portion of the new capacity coming online is is renewable or or battery storage. Yeah, and uh, if we look forward to 2022 and 2023, do you, do you have a can we get a good sense of those numbers yet, or does does it still depend on future legislation at the federal level? Yeah, um, there's there, there's obviously a lot of development interest going beyond. Um, it, it, there's a lot of uh, aspirational projects, a lot of notional projects. You know, it, I mean, in total. You know, basically what we have tracked in, in terms of projects and development, wind and solar, we have 125 gigawatts of wind and solar um, that we have tagged to come online in 2022 and 2023. Now, how much of that will actually actually reach commissioning is is still to be determined. Um, obviously, there, there's 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 support at the federal level in terms of you know the the federal um, investment and production tax credit extensions. Um, but but still, you know, even if even if half of this capacity comes online, you know, we're still talking over 60 gigawatts. So so the development interest is substantial. Good. Uh, and I, I'll, I want to come back to that and the FT, the production tax credits and the investment tax credits, which essentially give a, a tax deduction to those people that can take advantage of it for new wind mm -hmm. and solar. But I think at the federal level, there's also a proposal from the Democrats, which is backed by the White House, um, to get a clean energy incentive uh, piece of legislation up that I think would require something like 80% renewables of the whole fleet in the USA by 2030, nearly as ambitious mm -hmm. as, as Japan's task. Uh, could you just run through, I think that legislation's been taxed 
been put on the omnibus infrastructure bill that's due to come up later in the year. Could you just talk a little bit about that piece of legislation and what its chances of success are in your view? Yeah, so when Biden, Biden, Joe Biden's, uh, one of his key platforms ha has been, you know, energy legislation, the decarbonization of the energy sector. And and, uh, and this uh, clean energy standard is, is one of his, you know, stepping stones into into reaching that goal. And uh, the the big question that a lot of the um, a lot of the people around the industry had was, like, okay, we can we can make this goal of of going of decarboniz decarbonization of the energy sector by 2035 or an 80 percent clean energy standard, but what's the enforce, enforcement mechanism for it, right? Um, is there is there going to be, um, is there going to be some sort of carbon tax? Is there going to be some sort of um, fee for any generation that goes, you know, beyond the 80% um, that that utilities and regions are, are haven't met? Um, and in general, what, what seems to be the, the, the general theme is that a, a national carbon tax is not does not have the legislative support to go through, um, e even in you know Democrat he Democratic heavy segments. You know, we're still talking about regions that rely a lot on on natural gas and coal generation, and you know, so they're not they're not looking to shake up. Um, you know the the job sectors in those markets you know quite quite that much but in terms of the the 80% clean energy standard uh, th there's a little bit more support for that um but i i think it, it, there still needs to be some wrinkles i ironed out in terms of exactly how that that standard will be enforced so as i said i think it's been taxed put on to the end of some uh, an infrastructure bill which means it doesn't need its own approval just if you were a betting person, Adam, and you were advising your client, what would you what would you say the odds are of some form of that, even if it's not eighty percent, and even if it's got loopholes and things, actually getting through? Would you rate the odds as high as fifty percent? Oh, I I think so. I I I, do, I hesitate to put a percentage on it, but yeah, I, I would say there's a, there's a good chance of of a standard passing in some form, if, even if it is reduced from 80%. And as you mentioned, maybe some some slippery loopholes um, as as part of it. But yeah, I'd say there's a good chance that that some, some standard um, will be passed, uh, even if it's considered kind of an interim standard uh, with aspirations to, to increase it later on down the line. And if I look at the previous history of legislation in the United States, that would immediately mean that all the uh, people that don't like it would immediately go to court and argue it was wrong and it would probably get bogged down for a long time. Am I a bit cynical and pessimistic in thinking like that? <laughs> no, I, 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 think you're, uh, I, I think you're probably right on the money. Uh, there's, there's, definitely, uh, going, there's definitely going to be a lot of stiff resistance um, on this bill even even if it's dropped to 50% or 60%, uh, yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of resistance and there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, bureaucracy that kind of bogs it down. But uh, I, I think there's I think there's sufficient um, support at, at multiple levels to to push this through. That's interesting. And I guess the good news is that, as you pointed point out in some of the stuff you've been writing, that 
even if it uh, the federal thing is relatively slow and mainly consists of the investment tax credit and the production tax credit, there's still a lot of state level um, renewable portfolio standards and incentives and whatever uh, that are going to push their way through. And I think you have a feeling that this might make it difficult in some of the uh, capacity markets for even gas generation. A lot of coal generation's already retired and it, it looks like uh, it, most of the rest of it's on the way out. So so I guess the, the, the battleground is now moving towards gas. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, coal has, you know, for the last, you know, five to seven years has increasingly struggled to remain competitive on the open on the on the market uh, with um, with uh, cheap natural gas kind of pushing it out as long as well as cheap renewables. Uh, in interestingly, though, um, coal has seen a, a bit of a resurgence this year. Um, natural gas prices uh, this year, natural gas futures are a little bit higher than they have been. And coming out of the pandemic, uh, we've seen a little bit of a jump in, in energy demand, which is which has opened the door a little bit for coal. Uh, but we we do expect that to be temporary, um, and yeah, we do expect this economic pressure to to leak into um, the natural gas market as well. And we're definitely seeing that um, in markets that that already have an aggressive renewable portfolio standard and are already seeing substantial wind and solar development has has already put pressure um, on these um, combined cycle natural gas plants. So I, I think the PJM market is the one that uh, interesting because that's about a nine hundred a thousand terawatt hours more or less. So that's about five times the Australian market, and it's a very largely capacity-based market. Mm -hmm. Which, as I understand, you get paid uh, a return on capital for or, or something for your capacity. Maybe not your return on capital. Plus, you get paid your your fuel costs. So, so how would more wind and solar actually uh, negatively impact the, the gas generation? Wouldn't they just continue to get their capacity payments? Yeah, but as the, as renewable um, generation, you know, proliferates, and especially as we see more storage come online, um, those capacity payments are, are going to decrease. Um, you know, and um, you know, PGM is, is as you've noted, it, it's a large market. It's it's one of the largest of the kind of the segmented um, independent system operators um, that we have um, across the U.S. Um, and it's an interesting market because you really have all ends of the of the spectrum in terms of legislative support for renewables. You know, you have you have states like uh, Virginia and New Jersey that have very aggressive, you know, 70 percent, 100 percent renewable energy targets. And then you have states like West Virginia that have no standard whatsoever and are almost exclusively um, run by by coal and and natural gas. So, um, you know, the, the returns for for natural gas and PGM look a, look a little bit better um, because of, because of that kind of competing dynamic. Um, but as as renewable um, penetration increases and the reserve margins are able to be met by those by those resources, that capacity revenue uh, would decline ac accordingly. 
so it would make it make it would make the returns for those natural gas plants a little bit less favorable. And, and so I was looking at um, uh, a publication from someone else that kind of points out the peak in the United States of gas-fired uh, generation construction of about 70 gigawatts happened back in, in the early 2000s, about 2004. And mm -hmm. since then, it's been running at 10 to 20 gigawatts a year. Um, do you see much more gas generation actually being built? I mean, I, mean, I think you, the view that you guys have expressed about the, the problems for gas is, isn't the, you know, that, that's becoming more of a, uh, a consensus view, isn't it, really? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I, I I think we will continue to see some new natural gas generation trickle in, uh, new new uh, capacity being built. Um, but my my hunch is that a fair amount of this capacity will will come in as as peaking generation rather than um, you know base load combined cycle generation. So generation that's just used in times of high demand. The kind of to, to help balance the the large influx of intermittent generation with wind and solar um, that that is that is being built. So Adam, I I guess you talked to a, a a few of the generating companies, and I think generators in the United States broadly can be part of the regulated rate base, or they can be independent. There mm -hmm. are two sort of different segments. Could you just talk to me a little bit about uh, the sentiment that these got, you know, the sort of discussions that you have with them in terms of what's what's on their mind at the moment and the sort of uh, things they're thinking about? Well, yeah, you you, you pointed out the the two um, the two segments, and, and with 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 the rate based segment, with the the regulated utilities that are that are owning. Um, these these assets, you know, it, for them, there, there's two things at play, right? One is just they want to they want to be able to maintain reliability. They want to be able to, um, you know, provide electricity re reliably and, and as cost effectively as, as they are required. Um, but at the same time, a, a lot of these utilities are implementing their own clean energy goals you know, or carbon free goals, you know, several have implemented, you know, you know, they want to, a lot of it comes in terms of carbon reduction, you know, they want to reduce their, their carbon emissions by 80% by, by 2035 or 2040 or, or whatever. So they, they, it's a balance between, um, between those <clears throat> aspects and, and what they see as, as, as what's necessary to reliably operate their grid. Um, on the other hand, you know, when you're talking about um, deregulated generation, which, you know, we, which we call merchant generation, that has a much tougher um, um, outlook, particularly in the areas where we are seeing aggressive renewable generation. Again, um, you know, these, these, these plants are going to have a much tougher time um, securing financing and, and reaching their debt obligations. In uh, markets like New York uh, and New England, where there is a aggressive renewable legislation compared to, say, the Southeast, where there were, um, where that's a lot more limited. Yeah, uh, and um, so I think if you look at a map where these renewable standards are, it pretty much would overlap the uh, Democrat uh, side of the United States, which just makes me smile, and I don't think will surprise anyone. And that's the 
southeast, uh, which the Republican areas that don't have anything going on. But I don't really care about that. Uh, you know, I think your the note I read of yours suggested that as much as 15% of the entire gas fleet, which would be the regulated and unregulated fleet, could be seen some kind of financial pressure develop over the next, uh, doesn't look like it'll get enough revenue to cover at their full costs. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, this is, this is revenue largely, um, you know, as, as it stands currently, um, you know, a, a clean energy standard would, would increase that percentage substantially higher. Um, you know, again, where we're seeing that the highest percentage of these assets at risk uh, is in the New York and New England uh, segments where um, all of those states have a renewable portfolio standard in place. And we're seeing a lot of wind and solar development and we're seeing a lot of offshore wind development, uh, which is expected to put pressure on these on these natural gas plants. Um, and if a, if a national clean energy standard kind of forces the hand um, for more renewables to be built in other parts of the state, I think we'll see that that percentage increase accordingly. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I want to come back to that and I'll also talk about the uh, offshore wind uh, because that's another topic, uh, favourite topic of mine uh, as it develops. But we, I, I, we didn't quite get to the end of if we have this national clean energy standard uh, at federal government level, what the enforcement of it actually would be. It's As you say, it's one thing for the federal government to pass a law how, as as the legislation is currently proposed, how would it be enforced? Um, honestly, I, I haven't um, I haven't been real clear on on the enforcement mechanism as the legislation as as it as it um, is currently um, as it's currently proposed. Watch the, so, watch, watch the space. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess you could say that. Um, I, I, I think, I think there's, like I said, I think there's some, um, still some things that kind of are, are, are yet to be ironed out um, in terms of that. Um, but I, I, I would, I would suspect that the enforcement mechanism will come in, in some form of. Uh, you know, tax or fee on 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 any generation uh, that 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 falls short of uh, of the requirement. And in the in the same way that 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 a lot of these states um, enforce their renewable portfolio standards. You know, if if they uh, you know <clears throat> if the if the requirement is twenty five percent and they're coming in, you know, a thousand megawatt hours short. Uh, of that target, then those thousand megawatt hours will be will be priced at, at some predetermined predetermined rate, and that that you know, and then that utility would would pay would pay that in order to in order to meet compliance. And I suspect it would be something similar at a federal level. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that. You know. I, so I, I guess the overall. Uh, thing is that it's tough for thermal generation already, and it seems to me there's every chance that it that it will get tougher as time goes on. That's the history, not just in the United States, but all around the world, as far as I can see. Um, and and we we here in Australia do a lot. You know, last week, Adam, you wouldn't have noticed, but we talked to someone in, in Vietnam uh, about the massive 
20 gigawatts of solar they put on there in four years and, and, and what that's happening. And then we could turn to India uh, or I could look at Europe. There's a lot of markets where this is happening. But another thing that's happening on a global uh, scale is the offshore wind industry. Um, now, the United States has, if I look down at Texas, some incredibly cheap onshore wind, uh, as we do in Australia. But uh, we're currently thinking about offshore wind for, re for other reasons, um, one of which is that its um, uh, output is much more closely correlated with demand. Uh, mm -hmm. then, then, um, but what, what's the how's the offshore wind industry looking in the United States? And it seems to be an East Coast thing rather than a West Coast thing. Yeah, correct. Um, the, the, most of the, uh, I, uh, actually, I would say almost all of the the notable development is almost exclusively on the East Coast. And uh, you know, the offshore wind industry in the U.S. has <laughs> has had a kind of a, a frustrating history of getting going there's been several several projects that have you know they've secured power purchase agreements they've they've looked like they've been in line to to get off the ground and then inevitably those power purchase agreements get pulled and the project um you know gets uh gets canceled um but there there seems to be a lot more um momentum behind um the industry now we're seeing a lot of um, European uh, players. Orsted, for instance, has opened up a couple major hubs along the East Coast and is going to be a major um, developer for offshore wind. So I think you know, kind of having a company like that with experience um, in the European market will help. And further, uh, the, you know, there's there's some dedicated tax credits. There's a 30% investment tax credit going towards offshore wind. Um, even with projects that have been under construction, you know, even going back to, to, to uh, 2017. Um, so, you know, right now we have, um, I believe it's about 20, 26,000 uh, megawatts, 26 gigawatts of offshore wind um, goals or targets at the state level. You know, um, New York, um, I believe, has a 9,500 megawatt. Or, uh, yeah, 9,000 megawatt target. Um, New Jersey has a 7,000 megawatt target for offshore wind. So, so a lot of these state level um, targets and requirements are going to help push things along. And I think we're seeing a little bit of the hesitancy, um, you know, from investment banks to put up that much capital for these projects start to start to erode as we see more federal support um, and more legislative support. Yeah, and, and just quickly, that 30% uh, investment tax credit, which is an upfront deduction from someone's tax bill uh, of the capital cost of the program, what's that worth, about $15 a megawatt hour or something like that? Oh, I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, really calculated that or looked at that too closely, but uh, I mean, that, 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 that sounds reasonable. I mean, with, with the declining costs of of offshore wind, um, you know, that, that goes a long way to, uh, you know, making the generation a little bit more competitive in today's market. So, yeah. And if we said, and just coming to the end of our time, unfortunately, but if I said, you know, if we said that there was like, I don't know, 35 gigawatts of uh, wind and solar going to get installed in the USA this year, would you say that over the 2022, 23, 23, 2024, it would be more or less than that on an annual average if, if you had to make a bet. I would say it'll be it'll be more than that on an annual average. Um, 
as it stands currently, um, you know, there was an extension of the of the tax credits for um, for both solar and wind investment and production tax credits. Um, and so, um, over the next couple of years, as as those credits expire, we're going to see an increasing push to get projects off the ground and, and built um, in order to maximize the, those tax credits. So I think between now and 2024, uh, especially, um, I, I would expect that annual average to continually increase. And beyond that, I, I would say it, it should still, as as legislative targets and corporate demand and and, and other factors increase, but it's it's you know that's that's a the, lot the more. The future is uncertain. Yeah, yeah uh, correct. Uh, and Adam, finally, we we never got round to talking because I don't think any of those numbers include the behind the meter solar segment, do they? No, no, that, that those are those is that is almost entirely yeah at, at the utility level. So, what what do you happen to know what uh, behind the meter rooftop uh, is running at an annualized rate at the moment? Would there be a couple of gigawatts there, maybe a bit more? I haven't. I haven't. Um, I, tr I don't track the distributed market um, as closely, um, but it, it, it's definitely a substantial market. Um, you know, certain certain areas like California um and other areas in the southwest are definitely leading the way but it, it's it's definitely seeing increased interest in the southeast um even with the lack of legislative support it's just become so cost effective and with the excellent solar resource there um it, it's becoming a little bit more popular um i, I unfortunately i can't put a, a good you know qualitative number on it um but that's, that's, that's cool. Here in Australia, it's like six percent of total energy, and uh, and growing at uh, I don't know maybe two percent a percent or two every year. So we ex I expect it will be ten percent of the total supply twenty four seven three sixty five days a year. Uh, you know, within about three years. So it's and and pretty much represents. Uh, Seventy to eighty percent of total supply in the middle of the day <laughs> will be coming yeah. from solar in our market. Just to give you an idea of a comparison of how powerful it can be, I, I get the USA is not not Australia. That's for sure. No, it's it's not a substantial in the U.S. In the U.S., it seems like you know behind the meter solar hasn't significantly moved the needle in terms of uh, overall energy share. What it really does is kind of reduce reduce overall demand. Um, that's where we've, that's where we really see the biggest impacts, but um, it'll be interesting to see as, as that segment increases. And as we um, kind of see more mature, um, you know, market forces and, and things like that, um, you know, if, if that starts to change. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think when we look at it, we find the installation costs in the USA are like way higher than in Australia. And that's because I think the, uh, um, uh, the utilities just don't want it, you know, and have made it harder. Than, but, but but let's not get bogged down there um, uh, for our listeners. Who uh, Adam uh, Wilson, it's been great talking to you and sharing some views about the USA, a market we don't talk about often enough. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the, on the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. And that was um, Adam Wilson um, from SNP. Um, David, yes, I mean, it's a sharp contrast. I mean, sort of huge inroads for um, uh, wind and solar. Um, not a great outlook for gas, yet um, Australia seems to be sort of betting its future on a gas-led recovery. Um, it's just not tenable, really. Well, we're, we're actually well ahead of the United States overall in terms of our wind and solar penetration, which is, as you know, uh, over 20% at the moment with rooftop and, and still are growing like crazy so 
but but the US was making progress. And what we've seen, we talked last week about Vietnam having made 20 gigawatts of solar in, in four years, which is as much as Australia's got altogether. Uh, and they've done that very quickly and have got a lot more progress. So, you know, as, as we go around the world's, I hesitate to use the word battlefields on a day like today, but in the continuing economic and technology change that we're seeing, uh, there's progress being made by renewables everywhere, which continues to drive the cost down. So, you know, I'm, it's, it's an incredible, it's not never moving as fast. And uh, the USA needs way, way more ambition or way more achievement, not ambition. Ambition's not the problem. It's achievement that we need at the moment. Yeah. Well, David, let's leave it there. Um, thank you very much for doing that um, interview. Um, thanks all to the um, everyone out there listening to our podcast. Thanks very much for your feedback. Um, keep doing so. Thanks particularly to our advertisers, Evergen and Pylon. And uh, we'll be back again this time next week. Charles, just before you, you go, and thanks again to the sponsors, but but just remind me when the seminar is next week or webinar. It looks... Uh, um, it September, looks like... se- September the 1st, 4 o'clock. If you go onto Renew Economy, you can find the link there. It's going to be a very interesting discussion with Matt King and Collier and Simon Corbell, hosted by Paul Kernow from Ashurst. So we'll, um, we'll see you all then. Bye for now. Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.